Leftovers Season 3, Episode 6, Certified, is still over, but we're just getting started. Digging into your feedback here on the Leftovers Podcast on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler, and I am joined here by a man who would never be my Judas, Antonio Mazzaro. Unless we're talking about Judas and the Lady Gaga. The <laughs> uh, speak for yourself, Josh. 30 pieces of silver. Who knows what that's worth in uh, modern money? Yeah, I feel like a decent amount, right? Yeah, I don't know if silver has appreciated in the way gold has, but 30 seems like a lot more than zero, which is how many pieces of silver I have now. I love gold. Uh, <laughs> I have a Dutch accent. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Isn't that weird? Uh, all right. Well, I don't know why we just went into Austin Powers territory. We're trying to keep things light here. You know, still talking about a very dark episode of The Left. Yeah, I'd like to thank everybody for waiting for us to get this feedback show up. But in truth, it's nice to have had a break and not be thinking about what happened in Certified all week long. But here we are to reopen old wounds, Josh. Yes, to reopen old wounds, we're going to talk about certified. It's going to get heavy, I'm sure. So before we get into the, any of the heaviness, we're keeping things a little bit light. We do this typically halfway into the podcast, but it's going to feel weird to do that halfway into this podcast. So let's just get this up front. Since we're talking about certified, how about we talk about true car certified dealers, Antonio? Just right up the jump here. Let's do it because there is no artful way to transition from suicide <laughs> to uh, car sales. So let's do yeah, that Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. So we're just going to toss this in the front here. And just to let you know about True Cars, our sponsor of this episode, we love True Car. And in order to feel comfortable that you're getting a fair price, Antonio, you need pricing context, information that's going to empower you to feel confident. With yeah. True Car, you'll see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. And from there, you can connect with a local True Car, wait for it, certified dealer, and enjoy a more confident car buying experience, Antonio Mazzaro. That's great. I'm not sure about the use of the word there, but we're just going to move on. We're going to move on. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. True Car will show you what other people in your area have paid for the car that you want, so now you know what a fair price is, and you can feel confident, and confidence is good. Confidence is key. Once you register, you will see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by a True Car. Wait for it. Certified dealer for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with the local, wait for it, certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. So when you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states, once again, like Melbourne, Kentucky. Yeah, or Australia, or California. Or Australia. No, we don't know the states in question, but some features are not available in all states. Sounds to me as a lawyer, like a lawyer put that in there, Josh. <laughs> You're a certified lawyer. I'm a certified aren't you? lawyer. Yes, I was certified. Yeah, there's a uh, there's no question about that, man. Josh San Juan del Certified. San Juan del Certified. Look, what a week! What a week we've had here. I know you've been very busy. I've been very busy not thinking about Lori Garvey's certified choice, and yet here we are, Josh. It's one of those things where you might want to shove it away. You might want to pretend it didn't happen. It happened. We're here to talk about it. We're here to take your feedback, listeners. Uh, there was a lot of there were a lot of really good personal feedback, um, and I, I guess I'll say the main takeaway from this feedback about Lori's decision, Josh, is that. Nobody had a really good answer, and of course, yeah. they shouldn't, right? Because this is suicide, and it shouldn't make a ton of sense. This isn't cut and dried. This is the leftovers. So it is a decision that didn't make a ton of sense to a ton of people, and even though that is the case, I think people were able to find some understanding of her mental case. So I'm excited to get into what, uh, what people's observations were about this episode. Yeah, no, a lot of touching feedback that came our way. Uh, you know, this is a difficult episode, and it's extraordinary 
extraordinarily difficult subject matter to to parse through. Uh, you know, I, I I think that you and I did a decent job of it, as decent as you can, on our show on Monday, and I know we're going to try and be very sensitive about it here as well. Uh, you know, The Leftovers has always been a very powerful show. Certainly, uh, you know, starting around the time of the guest when the show really, really starts getting really good. Um, but you know, it's always been a show that is at least hip deep in the swamp of sorrow. Uh, and this was an episode where we drowned. You know, quite literally in the case of Laurie, and it was hard. It was really hard to watch. You know, people who I know who watch the show and interact with us on Twitter and, you know, sending feedback through the podcast, like Brendan Fitzpatrick, for example, who's one of, like, the brightest, most, you know, upbeat guys I know, really was beaten down by this episode. And I'm sure a lot of other people were beaten down by it as well. I was beaten down by it. You were beaten down by it, Antonio. So we're going to take it really seriously, and we're going to talk it through and, you know, keep opining on everything that's going on with uh, what happened with Lori. And beyond that, though, there was, you know, a lot of uh, forward momentum and some other storylines too in this episode that I don't know that we gave due credit to in our first podcast, though I think we were, you know, appropriately focused on the major headline. So I'm sure we'll get into all of that stuff as well. We will. We will. And uh, well said uh, what you're what you're bringing to the table there and well said by the people who wrote in. Even if we didn't get to your feedback, we do read all of it and it does influence uh, what we think and say. So please continue to do that. You can always tweet at me. I'm at AC Mazzaro. Josh is at Round Howard. We also, of course, have our leftovers only email address where you can email that directly and we will get your feedback. That email address is leftovers at postshowrecaps.com. Is that right, Josh? That's correct. Leftovers at postshowrecaps.com. You can also go to postshowrecaps.com slash feedback and use our feedback form there. And we got uh, about equal amounts of direct feedback and feedback through the feedback form. So it all comes through. The messages are going. Even if you send it by carrier pigeon, we're not discarding it. We're here for it. But yeah, man, it was uh, it was rough to sift through a lot of the feedback. And I think it was rough for a lot of people to uh, to watch the episode. That said, there were people, uh, and I'm, I'm not singling these people out as uh, perhaps tilted or jaded or or cynical or any way there are people who watch the leftovers and expect the gut punch that that has been something that this show has brought to the table in the past as you're pointing out with guests and that this is in some people's minds the first big 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 version of that this season in a way that the leftovers has done in the past we had a, a great message from chris eden who said this is the first episode this season that has delivered really the emotional feelings that i was expecting and what's interesting to me about the leftovers this is me talking is that there is a lot of catharsis in this right like there is a lot of catharsis in seeing all these things play out and feeling these feelings and and watching characters go through things that they can't even put words to but that we can understand the emotions that they're processing and we talked a ton on our first episode this week about Amy Brenneman's performance and how as a silent person with the guilty remnant in season one she really mastered the art of conveying all of that not through speaking just through her actions and the things that she wasn't doing and the things that she wasn't saying and the way that all played out so it's a character who is uh, who is in tune with that being able to express the unexpressible uh, and through a lot of reactions and feelings and choices it's an actress who's done really well with it and even the actress herself Josh in a lot of these post interviews including I think uh, with, with your interview with the Hollywood Reporter, she had to process a lot of feelings and thoughts yeah. to get to this position. So I think the disparity, uh, I shouldn't say disparity, but the parity in our feedback, the variance, uh, the difference in the levels of people's thoughts and, and comprehension really does track with not only this uh, show as a whole, but the decision that was made on this particular episode. 
So where do you want to start, Antonio? Where should we begin as we start digging into feedback? Because I know you and I, we've talked about this uh, quite extensively. Let's, you, you know, use some of the thoughts from everybody else who's listening in to kind of lead us into the next phase of the conversation. Well, it's interesting because there's a really nice evolution from our comments. It really does run the entire spectrum. Let's just kick it off with, a, with just a, a good little uh, introduction. Bobby from Jersey. Bobby says, what do you think the final straw was for Lori deciding to attempt suicide again? Bobby says, I kind of read it as though she had been trying to help people move on for so long. And she finally realized that it's a lost cause for them and for herself. What do you think, Josh? Is that is that a good read? Is that your read that Bobby from Jersey has? I think, you know, Amy Brenneman's explanation of it was, you know, kind of down to the idea of who am I to help you? Like, who am I to tell you what you have to do? Who am I to come down all the way to Australia and say, Kevin, you're a crazy person and you're delusional and what you're being asked to do and what you're considering doing is pure lunacy? Who am I to tell you those things if it's truly what you want to do? And I think it's coming from a place where Lori herself is, you know, feeling lost and doesn't have somebody who is telling her what to do or telling her what to do with her emotions and her feelings and her emptiness and how to fill that up. Um, So I I think less that it's a lost cause for the people in her life. I think it's more that she has lost her cause or maybe she feels that she's fulfilling her cause by, you know, giving giving a part of herself to these people of approval, of understanding, of love and allowing them to, you know, pursue their, you know, their wants and their needs to the end of the line if need be. Um, But I think... I think it's more than anything. I think it's more that she has lost the cause for herself rather than I think she views everybody else as a lost cause. I think that she is somebody who feels like, I'm not a person who can be giving you guidance anymore. You guys are guiding yourselves from this point forward. It's a good observation. The The issue that I have is that her actions do occur on a continuum, right? And I think where it's tough to process that is we see her talking Kevin out of a psychotic break earlier. And part of that motivation is clearly why she wants to come to Australia. But when she's on the boat with Matt, when she's on the plane with Matt... She is pushing back against the idea where who am I to tell you what to do? As a matter of fact, she is very much occupying the I am going to tell you what to do position with regard to Matt and on the boat and everything that the decisions that are being made about everything that's happening there. Lori has interjected herself into this situation and seemingly she did it to protect Kevin. And I think where people are struggling is how does it go from that point when they get off the boat to where we end up in this episode, which is when she has the porch conversation with Kevin, which is very much what you're saying, which is very much the who am I to tell you what to do? That doesn't necessarily seem like the Lori we've seen in the previous just couple of episodes and on the track that led her to this position. I think what's fascinating about that is her continuum extends, of course, beyond those couple of episodes. We had a great message from Lisa Seidel, and Lisa continued. Lisa wrote a lot of uh, background, and Lisa said basically that Lori's arc over the course of these three seasons has been of a person in a recurring loop of fighting to survive, only then to be knocked down. She loses her baby and can't find the peace and closure she seeks via psychiatry, so she decides to kill herself before changing her mind. She decides then that she still has to fight, and she has fight in her, and that faith 
Faith, uh, while she hasn't found the answers, might be just able to uh, find them if she keeps trying. She joins the Guilty Remnant. She searches to find meaning and peace with the Guilty Remnant, but she doesn't find it there either. Then she channels her anger and loss at not finding that peace into helping those who she perceives to be in the same mental state, like those XGR members. She fails at that, too, leading the person she has channeled her energy into to commit suicide. And then Lisa points out that we have this gap, right? We have this time jump where... That's the Lori Garvey we have seen on screen pre prior to the events of this season. But with the events of this season, we jump past in several years what seemed to be that she maybe has taken on Kevin or into a lesser or and, and probably to a greater extent, John, as their, her next projects. And then what we find out in this episode is that Kevin has relapsed through no effort of hers and just through Kevin being Kevin, Kevin relapses. And then Lori also finds out that John hasn't been completely honest with her, that whatever quote unquote repair they may have done, he's actually suffering much, much more than he's expressed. This is Lisa. These are Lisa's words. And Lisa says, in essence, what she did for them, just like everything before, didn't work again and again. We see her helping others as a way to help herself. And maybe because she thinks in helping them, she'll heal by default, too. And I think that uh, Lisa goes on to make the point that deciding to take your life isn't always a dramatic choice. It usually isn't, in fact, and it rarely comes out of nowhere. It's people who have held on year after year because they feel like they owe it to people. And anyway, time eventually comes where they just feel like they don't have any more to give. And I think Lisa's observation of Lori on a longer continuum tracks a lot better for me and tracks with what we see in this episode, which begins with her first suicide attempt that we know of that took place sometime before the events of season one even. So if that was her first attempt, or maybe if it even wasn't, like that's the the beginning of this episode is making clear to us that this is a person who has struggled all along. So we can't just read the 180 that seems to happen from the time she gets off that boat with Matt to the time we end this episode where she gets off of a boat in an entirely different way. This is a continuum, Josh, where she has behaved a certain way and she's in a process and in a struggle and we're reaching the end of this world and she's talking to these people that she thought were okay or she thought were repaired or better and they're not and those are her, her charges and her causes and I do think that that's enough ultimately to push her to a position where this is something she's thought about for a while and she's ready to just go through with it. I think part of the, you know, one of the many reasons why this is tough, though, is, you know, that scene, that first scene of this episode, though it takes place years ago, and, you know, through that, like, a lot a lot of this makes sense, you know, she's been fighting this for a while, potentially. Um, I still think, you know, the fact that it, it, because it happened years ago, but it just happened within the same episode where she actually goes through with it. Uh, that's tough. You know, that's tough because it, it's it's in the timeline, in the continuity, like there's history there, but it's brand spanking new news to us. Right. And I'm not I'm not criticizing the show. No. Uh, you know, I, I think that's part and parcel with the shocking nature of an action like this. Um, I think that that is, you know, a, a huge piece of the horror of suicide and the tragedy of suicide is it is such a gut punch because it is uh, it makes you it makes you wonder about your ability to judge characters and your ability to, you know, to know the people in your life. If you had no idea that that was coming, that you're just completely sideswiped by something. So in a way, it's kind of intelligent writing to have this be a sideswipe within the context of the episode doesn't make it hurt any less. In fact, it makes it hurt more. Um, but I, I think that that's a big piece of it, that there wasn't like a clue to the, to the extremes that, uh, that Laurie was feeling before this episode. Um, you know, you certainly knew, like I said to her, and like I said on uh, the podcast uh, the other day, 
there is certainly always been like a fire in Laurie, and we have seen that all series long. But you could say that about so many different characters on The Leftovers. Um, but we I, we never really had the indication that she was you know this hurt, that she was this ready to go. Um, and I think that to have that act as a as a blindside, as a as a sideswipe within the context of the same episode where she does it, you know, really kind of protects the reveal uh you know to kind of you know put it in you know sort of cheaper terms uh i think it 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 protects the story to a degree yeah it does and i think that's a good point and i also think that maybe if they had more episodes or if they if things were going to go differently they could have arced it out differently however i think you're right that it's an intelligent choice and that it does seem to be out of left field and yet within the context of the show at large never mind this season but just what we know about Lori from seasons one and two it tracks it makes sense it makes sense to me because everything that happened with the guilty remnant in season one Lori is lucky that she's not dead uh, many people with with involved in the guilty remnant in season one did die. Uh, there was a horrible incident in Mapleton brought on by the guilty remnant in, in mostly part of Lori's charge. Like that was Lori bringing that event to bear the riot, the fires. Jill was stuck in that building. Lori could have easily met her maker uh, or find out found out where the departed people went. Uh, or even in season one, this could have happened. And then in season two, as we've talked about. Very similar things happening. She's at the end of her rope. She's lying. She's killing guilty remnant members. She's pulling people out of the guilty remnant and throwing them back into the world with little regard uh, for the first do no harm part of her oath. So it is. Uh, this is not out of nowhere for Lori Garvey. You call it a fire, and I think that's fair. But I think there's a darkness to that fire. It's not just bringing light and heat. Uh, it's bringing despair and desperation. And there's an actual fire in season one that she is directly behind that could have led to her demise, as I was saying. So I think that, that it fits in that regard, even though it's a surprise in the context of especially the last couple of episodes uh, when she felt like the person of science and she felt like the realistic person among all these people who are acting really on blind faith over what we can admit seems really unlikely. Likely, like even if you even if you take the hotel thing at face value, that Kevin can go to this hotel, that he can see maybe deceased people and he can do this. There's just no way of guaranteeing that every dead person these people want to be there will be there. They're acting really crazy about this, but you they're acting on faith and we can't really put that on blast. And I think we had a great email uh, as well from Noah about this. And Noah said that Lori is a woman of science. That's how she defined the world and the people in her life. It made sense to her. And perhaps it failed her and by extension she felt like she was failing the people around her she didn't have the answers anymore and even if she didn't believe the end of the world narrative there was a sense of approaching resolution that she couldn't control everyone around her was turning to faith maybe in the absurdist reality of the departure after trying different things for seven years she felt like maybe there was no meaning to life that made sense to her so she was done and I think that's a I think that's a also part of this observation, right, which is that there are all these people turning to faith at these moments. She doesn't really have that. She's always yeah. relied on science. It's, it's a great read. Down. Yeah, it's a good. Yeah, read. no, that that really lines up with, uh, you know, I, I think that that's a really smart read of Lori as a character. Uh, you know, the way that like she really ripped into Reverend Matt on their way to Australia about the whole Messiah complex. Um, and even in her interview with me, Amy Brenneman was when I asked her, like, does she, you know, is the reason that she's like cool with letting Kevin do what he's going to do because she has come to believe in it to some extent. 
And like very, very quickly, she was like, no, 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 definitely not. No, no way. She thinks it's bullshit, <laughs> so I, which I thought was really funny. But that's really, you know, indicative of her interpretation, at least, of Lori as a woman of science, you know, as somebody who is a practical person, um, you know, a practical person first, not somebody who has uh, a lot of spirituality. Um, and, you know, in the in the context of my work is not helping people anymore. Like what I'm doing, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing is helping people through their traumas. And if I can't do that anymore, and if I've tried and if I've tried and I've failed um, in her perception, then, you know, maybe it's time to, to pull a pull an alternate universe Nora Durst, you know, in the in the world where Nora Durst would do something like this, because this, you know, idea does stem from that conversation in the van, you have to think. Yeah, it does. And I think that brings us to a really good point uh, that that I would that I would say, which is ultimately that it is the conversation in the van, keeping in mind, of course, that Nora herself is very scientifically oriented, that she sees the departure through a particular lens, not to play a buzzword, that lists itself out in, in, in questions and in denial and in catching frauds and in understanding liars. Nora spends season two convinced the girls didn't depart, convinced that it didn't happen. The right. main the main beef between her job is yeah her job is literally myth busting she's a ghost buster right like myth yes. buster like she is that that is what she does and so she is out on that to an extent and i do think w- whether or not you can uh, you can play it one way or the other Lori talks in this episode she says like i can tell when people are suicidal and i know that she knows what decision that nora is making and maybe she crassly calls it a suicide machine, but she's seeing the suicide note. She's talking to Nora directly. Nora's the one who gives her the scuba idea. And I think it's no, it's not lost on anybody that that's how she ultimately does it. That is her final exit. It's exactly what Nora said. So to say it's not influenced by that conversation with Nora is completely not in the context of the story. It is directly what Nora said. So thematically, I think it's also influenced by the fact that here is this person of science who she's most like. Josh, before this week, we thought what we were going to see was a showdown between team you know team kevin is savior and team kevin is not the savior and that lori and nora were going to team up and take on all these crazy people and when in the reality of the episode is nora's out on that she doesn't care about it at all she cares about herself and she's ready to move on too and once lori's there they're on a very different team and that team is the team of people who are kind of over this world and who are ready to move on to whatever is next because their place in it uh, it doesn't really have a place in this absurdist world as uh, as the listeners have observed post a departure like this is ultimately an absurd world so people that have this direct viewpoint maybe don't have a place in it and I think when Laura when Nora is out, it's a much it's much easier for Lori to be out for sure. Yeah, uh, I know, uh, I know, I know because it is very difficult because uh, <laughs> it feels like the other shoe dropping on that is Nora, and that is like I cannot have Josh back to back weeks on this show where like multiple key characters are dying. I know it's the end of the leftovers, and I know the leftovers has set up the end game as potentially the end of the world, but I really just, that is so unpalatable to me. I have not been watching a show all along that is killing ki- Hell, Josh, last season they couldn't even kill the main character. They shot him, they buried him in the ground, right. and I poisoned <laughs> and he wouldn't die, and now right. everyone's going to die? Like, this is pretty morbid, even for me. Yeah, but you know what? I'm I'm still going to hold the line here. I still think that we are driving towards a bittersweet ending and what we just witnessed, what we just experienced is like the bitterest pill to swallow. Uh we lost somebody who 
we really loved, you know, we really grew to love this character, somebody who was antagonistic at the start and somebody who we really found ourselves feeling for and understanding to a degree only to realize we did not fully appreciate the pain that she was in and we lose her in such a cruel unexpected way in in such an unexpected way really sucks uh it's horrible it's horrible but it would be so horrible to now take Nora Durst off the board. And that would be, it, it would feel cruel. It would feel mean in a way that I don't think The Leftovers is mean-spirited. I think that, you know, a, a true drama, like a really compelling drama, it often will, you know, remove people that you care about, you know, and that will be something that's, you know, designed to either influence the characters, to impact the characters, or just because it's, you know, in service of the world that these people exist in and, this is likely to happen to somebody. I mean, it's certainly happened to people who we have not met on the show in this universe. You have to imagine. Um, but, it, you know, to, to have a character that you recognize and that you feel for and that you've grown to really love and have affection for to do something like this is so painful. Um, but to, to now turn around and, and kill a character like Nora, uh, I think, would be too brutal and too devastating. And I think it would be uh, outside of the overall tone and tenor of The Leftover. So it's, it's a weird thing to say, but I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future of the show still. Like I, I, I knew I, in my bones that like we were going towards bittersweetness. Maybe didn't know that it would be this dark. This is a really, really dark note. But I feel like this is going to be the darkest note of the series. Yeah, uh, I hope you're right, man. I really hope you're right because I hope so too. I don't want to like get anybody's hopes too up or anything like that. Who am I? I'm just a schmuck who doesn't know anything. But I, but I, that's that's my feeling on it. Um, and I think if they were to take us lower than this, actually, that's when we're starting to veer into territory where I'm not going to be super satisfied with the leftovers. And this is a show that once it really has started to get going, like midway into season one, has rarely, if ever, let me down. And I feel like fairly simpatico with like what the show wants to do. And I think it wants to really, really drag us low so that we can end in a place of catharsis is, I guess, the word I would use. Yeah, and I had that thought when Kevin and Nora split, uh, right? I, I had that thought that this was uh, something that needed to happen before the end, that we, we needed to do that in the middle of the season because by the end we could get some more mileage out of that so that it didn't end in the worst negative place. Like if you end the show with them falling apart and there's never any resolution on any of it, and whether it's not whether it's resolution between the two of them or just resolution in general for one of them or to understand that at least one of them made their piece maybe the other one's off the board one way or another that's fine but i felt like that needed to happen when it did so that we could get into the end game of the series and i understand with what you're saying uh, what you're saying with how that is the case with Lori as well many series uh, and not that the leftovers is in many in any way a paint by number series in many ways it is not but many television series do this they'll kill a major character with a couple of episodes left on the board and make makes me feel like anything can happen in the last couple of episodes and then they'll bring you into a position where, okay, like maybe major characters didn't die after that one. That was the gut punch that set us up and brought us into the, the third act, right? That's the death at the end of the second act. The third act, the, the resolution, everything that builds into that will come in these next couple of episodes. And I do have faith that that's the case. Although, and we'll get into this in the second half of the show, 
it just does feel like Kevin Garvey, uh, whether or not you want to take Nora Durst off the board, Junior seems like he's in real jeopardy. And I think that's the big concern that people will flag for the next episode is if, if Junior is going to be put in this position where he is literally being killed, then it seems at least possible that he will die on the show. And we'll get into some comments about that. But before we wrap up everything with Lori, because we have uh, uh, several other really good points, I want to ask this. It's a little bit off the board, but it, it tracks with a little bit of what we're talking about, the, the story of Lori Garvey itself. Random Nando, great friend of Post Show Recaps, Random Nando, says that Carrie Coon and, and Amy Brenneman were so great together in this episode. Great duos, like Elizabeth Moss and John Hamm in the suitcase episode of Mad Men, or Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul in almost any episode of the final season of Breaking Bad. Nando's question is, could the show have done anything at any earlier point to involve Lori Garvey more, considering how great she was by the end? I think that this is... I think to call it a problem isn't isn't the right way to describe, but it's definitely it was definitely you know a consequence of people not finding the leftovers or not enough people finding the leftovers and the leftovers you know being critically acclaimed but not being a show that was widely viewed and getting into a position where we are we are lucky to have a final season you know like we're lucky to have eight more episodes past season two um but i think that you know with the show being what it was and then choosing to start to tell stories the way that it did in season two where it's a lot more character focused on an episodic level we lost like the famous example in damon lindelof's words and his view is jill garvey who once again we're not getting a lot of jill garvey either Mm. uh but he really he really wanted to to have a lot more jill garvey on the show uh, in season two. Would have loved to have had an episode that really highlights her, but there just wasn't room for it. We're seeing it this season with, uh, you know, with the Murphys. You know, Erica's only in one scene. Uh, John and Michael are, you know, ancillary characters. They're supporting characters this year. Um, and like I said in a previous podcast, I still think that we saw a lot of character growth with Mike, uh, with John Murphy. I think that that's a character that we've seen a lot of, um, you know, forward momentum through other people's eyes, but it doesn't seem like we're going to have a chance for a spotlight anything on that character and i think that you you know i think just with the structure of the show with the fact that the show is going to ultimately land with a very short run of 28 episodes uh or i I think it's is it 28 yeah it's 28 ultimately right um you know i think that that's there's just not a ton of room to really fully flesh out the characters and explore all of the characters anyway to the degree that you would really really want um, so Lori Garvey is one of those characters potentially, though that being said, I think you, you, you might have that instinct that the, that the show didn't do a ton with Lori, because when you think of season one, you just think of how she didn't have anything to say, literally, like she was never talking except for the Garveys at their best. And when she finally starts opening up in the season one finale, but she has a killer second season episode. And even that season one stuff, just the, the work she's doing wordlessly is so impressive to me that I feel like Lori Garvey has been a big part of this show. She hasn't been, been as big a part as Nora Durst. You know, I, I think that, you know, Kevin and Nora are the heart of this series. And I think that they're the two characters really right at the core of the thing. But I don't think that Laurie is super far away from the center. I don't think she's at the center by any stretch of the imagination. But she's a she's a key clutch character and makes a lot of this turn. Uh, so I'm actually I'm actually pretty satisfied ultimately with how Laurie was used on the show. I'm devastated by how that story ended. But I also think that it's in in that sense and like on an emotional level, it's 
satisfying is the wrong word, but I think that it's complete. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Did you say Cora Durst? Is that what you said? I don't think I said Cora Durst, <laughs> oh. but if we're if we're struggling for hashtags, we could just go with that. No, I, I think you're right. And I think and repiloting the show in season two and putting it in Mapleton really did take a lot of those characters out of the equation. And it isn't just a lack of service or a lack of opportunity to tell certain stories, or it isn't just characters playing a very specific role. Because even when... Even when Amy Brenneman's not the center of an episode in season two, she's on the fringes. She's calling and saying, where is Tommy? She's showing up in uh, in Miracle because she's looking for Tommy. She's playing this weird outsider role. Her relationship with Jill is part of that, but it's a distant part of it and that the distance is important. So we see her in season two and the lack of her is actually probably just as glaring or jarring or jarring as the as having her featured is. And I think that that's part of it. And yes, the show, if it had more episodes, would probably have told her story a little more differently. I think that her in the world as a scientist or as a doctor, as a person of letters, a medical person, that especially a person who is involved with what she's involved in. It's not just science like uh, body science. She's talking about brain science. And so it would be a very different, it's a very interesting character to lens this world through. And I think The Leftovers has always done a great job of world building and building out how different things in the world have changed in light of the departure. But I think it is fascinating to think about Lori Garvey as a psychotherapist or psych therapist and just everything that she goes through with with that regard after the departure and how can. And I think seeing that scene play out in this episode showed why that could have been a really valuable character and why it didn't have to just happen with one scene that we could have. So I think if they had more episodes, they could have told just as good of a story. But I don't feel uh, cheated by the story that we got. It, it's sort of like yeah. I would have loved to have seen a leftover season set entirely in a country whose customs are vastly different than the United States just to see how they responded to it and to see how it impacted a completely different different culture, a non-Western culture uh, or a non-English speaking culture. We haven't seen any of that. Are there other cultures with different spiritual traditions who link this to something more significant or who maybe have something that's a lot more compelling for an explanation? I don't know. We didn't see that on the show. And what we saw on the show was a, a little bit of getting into that. Uh, Tommy traipsing across the United States, cults, Holy Wayne. We took it to Miracle. We've done a great job of world building, but there are a lot of stories in the Leftovers universe they could still tell with these characters though it does feel like we're, we're meeting them at a place and a time where this resolution whether or not they want it to or not is coming and i think some people might read that as like okay we're reaching high points with these characters because it's the end of the show that isn't my read i actually feel like in most cases this growth or what's happening with these characters is rather organic um, there are people uh, who feel that that this is an interesting thing about choices. We had an email from Pat Mack and Pat said in watching certified, I kept coming back to the subject of choices and more importantly, the subject of making choices because the character feels either rightly or wrongly that they have no choice. Kevin Sr. chooses to follow the path to killing Junior because there is no other path. Nora sees little choice between staying or going into what could essentially be a death trailer. Grace also has no other path but to kill Junior. How else will she find out about her kids and their shoes? 
Matt stays with Nora because the alternative is no longer viable and he's dying anyway. And Kevin Jr. sees that his path leads back to death and the hotel because death is the only place where he feels truly alive. Lori is the only one who makes a choice without feeling like there is no other choice. It took her seven years, but she finally figured out a way to get out clean. What do you think, Josh? Is it that she affirmatively made this choice? Did she reach the end of a thing? Where, where, where is this in, the, in terms of comparison to the other choices or lack of ability to choose and people feeling like it's their destiny? Uh, this, is, this is an affirmative choice by her, not her destiny, right? She does not strike me as somebody who believes in destiny. No, me neither. You know, that, uh, from everything that we were just talking about with Lori, like that's not somebody who is destiny driven. I do think that she is a practical person. Um, and I think to her, this feels like a practical choice. And I, I think it reads that way to me anyway. And and you get that sense in, in, in the final scene of hers, you know, when she's on the phone with Jill and Tommy's in the background and they're asking her, you know, oh, you're all alone. And when Lori like looks around and she goes, it's kind of nice. It's kind of peaceful. I believe her. I, I believe that she feels that way in that moment. Like, I, I believe full-heartedly that she is, you know, she's at her final destination, not the film, uh, and she is, she is ready to do it. She's made up her mind, and she's good with it. That's the way that it plays to me, and that, you know, to me strikes me as that's an affirmative choice. Yeah, we had a great comment from Jackie Tomeyer along those lines. Jackie said, I was sad that Lori took the route, but I felt so much compassion for her. Thank you, Jackie. I love that. Uh, that she was finally doing what was right in her heart and not what her profession had instilled in her to be the right course of action. Through the episode, I was filled with so much love for her journey, her goodbye journey to everyone. She left everyone she loved in peace in her mind and just did what she needed to do. I really hope that this is how we leave her. I don't need to see her in the hotel. I don't need any more from her. She gave her all to everyone including the audience so jackie was feeling the same piece as you josh that there was this this uh, some people call it when you're talking about recovery or things where you have a moment of clarity where things become clear to you in some way i'm not sure that we specifically identified a moment like this in this episode but it does seem to be that it's this journey to peace of mind and she was never going to be able to find peace of mind through talking these things out because to her, once the departure happened, I think the, 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 the stakes changed completely and her peace of mind became about finding peace of mind for the people around her. Uh, when she was unable to feel like she could do that, she tried to take that way out earlier. She joined the guilty remnant and she basically said, tell me what to do. That's the other thing is when we see her walk up to the guilty remnant in this episode after her, her first suicide attempt, she just says, tell me what to do. She's looking for instructions. She's looking for guidelines. She's looking for clarity because she yeah. doesn't. She's not able to get any in that moment after the departure. So here she is. Uh, here she is with that having something that weighs on her, and and that's a big part of it. And we had some other great comments about about this uh, user Jankinator from Reddit who has provided us good feedback all season long. Talked about how the opening of this episode is almost analogous to Lori's time in the Guilty Remnant. That that was essentially her spiritual suicide joining the guilty remnant they're living reminders but they discard everything in their lives they alienate those that are close to them uh, suicide is permanent and results in literal death but it does un and it does unavoidably affect those close to you uh, throughout the episode we see Lori consider the impact a suicide will have on others we also have a noticeable comparison to the gr with Lori's silence in the beginning of the episode again 
there, this is not, I guess what I'm getting at is this is not an unfamiliar path for Lori. This is something I think that if you look at the entire arc of her character and not just the last two episodes, it's there. And I think there's a good, there is a really interesting kind of beginning of this episode, seeing her get to the guilty remnant, exactly how she gets there and why she's going there. She's looking for answers. She doesn't get it. And so there we are. Speaking of looking for answers, Josh. We had a lot of people asking about a different topic, about Kevin Sr. and the Kevinite, specifically with Kevin Sr. Are we talking about all of the like beef stew that must be on his face right now? (laughs) Whenever he wakes up, he's going to have to take a shower. That guy should take a shower anyway. He's pretty dirty looking. He does look, unfortunately, like he's been living on the streets, which, to be fair, uh, we don't know how not true that is uh yeah he was briefly at least for a little while well and before he, we even see him at the beginning of his his crazy white fellow thinking episode we have no idea what his life is like uh, he talks about how he basically showed up went to the opera house got a nice suit on and then went on a crazy drug trip and has been spiraling ever since we have no idea the life he's been living but yeah he's, he's had some hard living it's clear and he's been going up and down these song lines and trying to learn these things and uh speaking of things we could get more mileage out of on the leftovers we, we did not see his entire journey over that time but no the question that people are asking is not stew related josh it is shoe related john Aubrey says when laurie arrives at the ranch she sees kevin senior carrying a bag she says what you got there and he says shoes obviously related to grace's concern about her kids missing shoes john says but i can't figure out the connection why senior would have a bag of shoes did he find them and he thought robert laner asked the same thing something from the episode has me really confused what's up with the shoes grace said that when her kids bodies were found their shoes were missing or were never found but at the beginning of the episode kevin senior says that he's holding a bag of shoes these have to be connected right but how and why what significance does this have josh what's up with the shoes too many shoes. Um, oh my god, shoes! Uh, I I don't know. Aren't you you're shoeish, right? Or at least shoeish. I am shoeish. Okay. Uh, I I think I think that could it be that he did find the shoes, and if so, would he not want Grace to know because maybe she'll be less galvanized to let Kevin do what Kevin needs to do to stop the end of the world? Oh man, that's dark. But yeah, it's possible, right? Like that is entirely possible that that is the case. That said, I don't know how Grace Playford has been looking for these shoes see, theoretically at like every secondhand shop in a hundred mile radius and hasn't been able to find them for years. And then Kevin shows up to her house and they're just there. Like that part doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We did see when Kevin woke up later or earlier in crazy white fellow thinking. And when he first kind of sees grace, she is, she's got those orange hazard bags and she's sorting through shoes. She has, I think bought just giant bags of donated kids shoes and is looking through them. And that's what she's doing in the moment, looking for her kids' shoes. So it's probably all part of that same thing. It isn't that he found some bag of shoes, and this is something we should be paying attention to. It's that the shoes are part of the Grace Playford story, that he's part of the Grace Playford story, and that he's carrying around the shoes that she's been carrying around looking for her kids' shoes, and that it doesn't really track directly to him hiding something. But, man, your read is is darker than that, and I guess it could be possible. I I guess... I mean, I just haven't really been spending almost any time thinking about this. I don't think that I've spent a single second thinking. How can that be? How can that be that you haven't spent the whole entire last five days thinking about kids' shoes, Josh? I I literally think that this is the first time that I've thought about Kevin Sr. holding a bag of shoes. Uh, Just did not register, did not land with me at all. So the first, like, knee-jerk thought that I'm having as I'm thinking it through is like, okay, we know that Sr. is incentivized to do what he's going to do with Junior. He 
fully believes that he needs uh, he needs Christopher Sunday's song. And the only way to get that would be to send Junior off to do what Junior's got to do. And if, like, he stumbled upon that stuff and found it and, like, they're at Grace's house and they need to keep using Grace's house, it would line up. But you're right. I mean, like, all these years and seniors there for a day and he finds it seems a little bit ridiculous. But then again, there's something about the Garveys, man. There's something about the Garveys, indeed, and Kevin does seem, Senior is the kind of guy that does hide his motivations. We've seen him do it. We have seen him lie. We have seen him obfuscate. We've seen him not just uh, sin by omission and not tell people what's going on around him. But this is something where he's also very fervent, in, so fervent in his pursuit of this, what he feels needs to happen, that he is willing, it seems, to go through with killing his own son, Abraham and Isaac, killing his own son in order to fulfill some kind of story or destiny. And so that is a, that is a great concern that Kevin Sr. maybe isn't always up front. Keep in mind before, uh, but Lori did the same thing. Like Lori's drugging them in this episode because she has an ulterior motive. But Sr. is not the kind of guy who is, is always up front about what he's doing. So there definitely could be something in that, that that could be part of it. We had this from Nancy Greenshield, speaking about what you were just talking about with Sr. and what he feels his mission is. Nancy says, will it backfire? Let's just say in the next episode, Kevin Jr. goes to the hotel and gets the song from Christopher Sunday. He brings it back for Sr., who performs it correctly. We know from what Christopher Sunday told Kevin Sr. and Crazy Whitefellow thinking that this particular song is supposed to bring the rain. Is this what causes the apocalypse? Josh, what do you think? Mm, no, I, I think... I think if the song is discovered and the song is successfully relayed back to Senior and we see Senior get to perform it, like, I don't think that that's going to bring about the end of the world. Like, I think if that's the direction that we're going in, if this mission is successful, I feel like, I don't know, I, I think that, I think that you know, the storm is going to pass and the meaning that Senior would assign to it is mission accomplished. But I don't see that, like, you know, he gets the dance and then the world is ravaged and it was a failure. The world might be ravaged still. Like, that's not completely off the table for me. But I think that the song would not be acquired if that was the case. Like, I don't think that there's going to be Kevin does the dance and, you know, the Christopher Sunday dance, which is a great (laughs) dance, by the way. Only one person knows it. Uh, and I, I don't think that he's going to do it. I don't think he's going to perform it. And then suddenly we're going to see, you know, the floods are still coming and everything ends. Like, I just think that that, again, again, I think that that would be too pessimistic. Like, I think that the, that the show has moments of pessimism for sure and cynicism for sure. And just darkness permeating the leftovers at many, many points. Um, but I don't think that that will be the final note of the show. And we only got two more left. So um, I'm, I'm choosing to stay positive, Antonio. At every turn, I'm going to try and stay positive. I would love to see Senior perform that dance uh, and then just nothing It's like happens. the safety dance, yes. the Sunday dance. I was going to say, if, dun, 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 if it doesn't dun, dun, work, dun, dun, yeah, he has, dun, to get dun, a, dun, he has to get a little person around. They have to get some medieval garb and just frolic through the, uh, the wheat uh, in wow. Australia. You know, yeah. even the, the safety dance lyrics are like sudden departure. You can dance right? if you want to. You can leave your friends we behind. We can leave your friends behind. <laughs> yeah, and if your friends don't dance, yeah. Well, that, that you're right. Like, the left behind. There you go. You Maybe we've cracked the case, Josh. Like, is the safety dance going to be one of the two final credits of songs in this season? 
dude, if if we have an episode where where Kevin Jr. goes into the underworld once again and tracks down Christopher Sunday and gets Kevin Sr. to take God's tongue and like brings him back to a TV screen and gets to show Christopher Sunday's dance to Kevin Sr. and we just immediately start breaking into the safety dance. I mean, come on. We're talking about, like, the greatest moment in television history. That would be phenomenal. It would almost be like a Bollywood-like ending. Like, this is not... <laughs> Listen, everything's retro nowadays. Like, that would be a big hit. Yeah. What are Kevin Sr. and Jr. at the end of the day but men at work, really? <laughs> <laughs> Kev at work. Kev at work. So I don't know. I think that's fascinating. I I think that uh, I look. That's not lost on me either, Nancy. That uh, that Christopher Sunday said that it wasn't lost on Christopher Sunday. I, that was this might have been among his last words. Like no, it's totally true. Yeah. I mean, like it's out. It's out there. You know, from Christopher Sunday. Like yo, no, 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 no. My dance, my song. It it brings the rain. Yeah, I came know, to this. bring the rain. Right. Yeah. yeah no, this is know, not this great. Is, this, it's not what you want, but seniors like no, it's a matter of interpretation. Uh, so like you know, it's Sunday's song, so you'd like to think that Sunday is the guy who knows what's up, um, which is why I'm saying like if if something apocalyptic does happen, I I feel like to to have that song out there and then to like definitively say that like Sunday warned senior and then you only have one episode left. I feel like that's just a little too harsh. I do too. But what if we've set up Josh the the wheels in motion for that post apocalypse already? Justin said, "Is it just me or do you think that the nuke that was set off will cause a massive tidal wave that hits Australia? This would be a great time to build the ark." Kevin Senior wanted to. The problem is no one was building it in episode six. And Vicky says, "I remember a class I took in college that that's good." Most people don't. Uh, that, yeah, I definitely don't. Yeah, that mentions when a volcano erupts, it can affect the weather in different parts of the world. Maybe this will be what happens on the anniversary. Something weather-related. Josh, the uh, the suicide ferryman for uh, for Lori Garvey did mention storms are coming. Is that what's going to happen? Does the uh, the crazy French, the crazy naked Frenchman submarine explosion, which is a lot to say, does that uh, create the scenario which brings the rain, which leads to the floods that Senior has been talking about? Yes, because it awoke uh, the three-headed monster that is going to emerge and ravage the world. And this is uh, The Leftovers is going to be a backdoor uh, Pacific Rim prequel. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, Del Toro. There's big. There's great room for Del Toro in this uh, Leftovers universe. That's uh, the Leftovers, as as run by and directed by Del Toro, would be great. Although Josh, we might have some vampires in it. Stragoy. Stragoy. Uh, Drew Sefton in D.C. says, The world does end, but Kevin Sr. saves Australia. Then the flash forward with the aging Nora in the pigeons makes sense. They're sending out carrier pigeons to try to find other survivors. But the birds return with their original messages, which is why Nora pitches the messages. No one else there. And Kevin Jr. is indeed the Messiah, which is why Nora needs to deny knowing him to the nun, because he helped save Oz and now lives quietly with Nora. Josh, I actually think this is an interesting thing that we haven't exposed a ton as we get into the end game here there are the things with the pigeons as we saw in the first episode in the sarah durst scene there are pigeons pigeons have messages on them a lot of messages of love the nun says but the nun is interested in getting the pigeons nora is gathering the pigeons somehow bringing them to the nun trading them for god knows what but why would the nun be interested in these pigeons like what value would these pigeons who can carry messages have in a normal world in modern society unless something has changed and it's not normal and it's not modern anymore 
Sounds like somebody's never eaten squab before. Oh, well, but yeah, but she's these are recycled pigeons. They're, she's not taking these squabs out and like... Uh, you know, with the right set of spices and techniques, any squab can be a friendly squab, indeed. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure either. Yeah. No, I, look, I think that that's still possible. It's certainly possible that we could see, you know... A, Think about how all in I was on that at the end of the first episode when we were on the podcast. Like, yes, take me to the apocalypse. Yes, there's no one around, so everyone must be dead. Bring me, bring me to the I live in a city. I don't live in the country. I never see (laughs) things like this. That's truly what it was, you know, just (laughs) reflecting on it. Like, I just don't know what that emptiness is all about. (laughs) Uh, There all is aching, Josh. It's emptiness is all. Like, that is everything that is there. Like, that is. Is that not the point of the leftovers? The emptiness is all. Yes. Uh, So I, I think that, look, we could be looking at a future scenario where the world is drastically different maybe australia is all that's left standing or maybe it's just that you know nora durst now sarah durst lives out in like a really remote part of australia where that's just you know the way things are done i don't know again i have no sense of what australia truly is well for someone who's living off the grid as sarah durst appeared to be the the birds would have some value perhaps in communication that does not seem to be the case with the church with the nun where there are power lines and all sorts of non post-apocalyptic things going on there yeah she's gardening but you don't need to have an apocalypse happen to want to raise a garden so the only the only question i have is like what is the value for her why are those pigeons valuable to her and you've answered my question there's clearly just a lot of squab roasting going on <laughs> let's not squabble about this yeah right? there's let's no just... point there's no point it'd be yeah. wasted breath for us to squabble in such a way uh we uh. said the readiness we said the emptiness is all not the readiness is all but speaking of shakespeare chico from israel says as for everything in the last 20 minutes of the episode i'm absolutely too wrecked to write about it wow that was brutal but i'm worried and thinking more and more that the ending of this show might be like the mist spoiler alert for the mist or romeo and juliet type ending everyone is dying slash killing themselves but they could have just waited one more day and perhaps been fine what do you think I'm about completely that? out on that You're out obviously on i'm completely out, out on okay that. Yeah, yeah yeah i mean i don't know how many ways i can say it i'm completely out on that not everybody's gonna be fine Obviously, as we saw in a really awful way this week, and it certainly doesn't look good for Reverend Matt either. I would put money still on Reverend Matt not making out of the leftovers alive. Uh, whether that's because we catch up with you know the Sarah Durst storyline in the future and we get a throwaway line that Matt eventually succumbed to his cancer. like We don't have to see Matt die in order for Matt to not make it out of The Leftovers alive. We know that we're barreling towards the future at some point. But I think that for the most part, I really, really do. like Unless like that's the context of it. like Unless that's the way where we're going to lose people, where it's just like so much time has passed and some people just die of natural causes or whatever, or die off screen. I don't think that this is going to end with, like, everybody just, you know, going in that direction. Like, it's not like everybody is going to follow suit with Lori. Again, I really hold to this. I think that the Lori thing is going to be the darkest this series ever gets. Uh, I'm I'm just putting out the positivity into the universe, but I truly, truly do believe that. I think just from a narrative perspective, I don't think that it could get darker. I really don't. Uh, in a way that would be effective, in a way that would be worth doing. It could get darker, but not in a way that I think would benefit the show. I think it could, could, it could get darker in a way that could um, anchor the show into a bad place. And I think 
damn, I'm uh, as somebody who's been burned by Lindelof before in final seasons, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I have a lot more faith what? in 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 this leftovers writers team to to land the plane as it were on this final season of the show. I don't think that they'll get that dark. I think it would be such a bad choice to go that dark, and I just don't see them doing it. Well, if they need to take off the plane, we know that Lapidus can't beat us. Like, we know there's a way they can get through to that. So uh, yeah. if landing the plane is, is in question, I'm not so sure. Uh, we had a, a quote. I think Adam Bradford is trying to trigger you, Josh, with what you just said. Adam Bradford wrote in and said, do you think there's any chance that Lindelof trolls us all and has the leftovers ending replicate the lost ending? All of our main characters end up at the Assassin Hotel. Senior appears behind Junior and explains to him that the times they spent together were the most important period of their lives. And the hotel is a place they made where they can all find each other. Would this ending be more satisfying for the leftovers than with Lost? Well, you know, if we're not doing it as like a beat for beat thing, right? Like if you take like the exact dialogue rips out of it and like it at least plays differently. Yeah. At least I will... Adam put them in quotes. I will say yeah, that. Fair enough. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, if if that's the case, like if this ends with like a final scene or sequence that has, you know, more than just Kevin in the world of the International Assassin Hotel, this show earned it. As far as I'm concerned, this show brought us there. You know, this show brought us there in season two. Uh, it brought us there twice in season two. It spent an entire episode there, and then we went back there. And clearly, Kevin's been trying to go back there, and it's very, very, very probable that Kevin's about to go back there again. This other world has been a part of the fabric of the leftovers for a long time now. And arguably, uh, you know, represents the best episode of the whole series, you know, depending on your view. Um, so I I know it sounds strange coming from me who, you know, I'm really anti the ending of Lost, even though I still love the show. I think that this show will have earned a moment like that, potentially. It depends on execution completely. But just as a concept, just as an idea, if it's if it's landed well, if it's written well, if it's moving, if it's emotional at least there's setup for it at least there is precedent for it so it wouldn't be a total sideswipe and it could be poignant and i'm not closed off to it that might be surprising to hear putting you at odds with uh, the prophecy of our great friend rob sister nino who says sure. if we anyone else goes to the hotel uh, we've jumped so it, it will be interesting to see ultimately I, we know I, I think we have a pretty good feeling we're going to go back to the hotel but i i think we talked a little bit about this on on the recap show this week it would not be at, at all out of bounds or the leftovers to swerve us with that. And so the question is, how do they swerve us? And we have a lot of feedback about that as well. But before we, before we wrap up this show, uh, we'll, we'll get into that. But I wanted to ask this question, Josh, because we had it from Chris Eden and from Vicky. Chris said, I suspect this is a popular opinion, but I believe the two doctors are aware of her tailing them. This is Nora. The barking dog, Matt pointing out that they're still tailing too close, them standing on a hillside in clear view. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. But seriously, it seems <laughs> obvious that these ladies the doctors know that they're being followed i'm very interested to see how this goes i just cannot see nora growing old in the mortal world as it currently exists so naturally i'm thinking about the scene from episode one i hated the idea of some alternate universe in the beginning but i'm starting to believe that the carrier pigeon nora is actually living in the world of the hotel mm. it seemed otherworldly from the beginning and something with the messages that kevin is transmitting maybe or pigeons it just strikes a chord perhaps Perhaps those are all messages that Kevin is shepherding back and forth. Jack shepherding, Chris said. Perhaps she really doesn't remember him in that context. If so, it is all very Lostian, but I'm personally not mad at that. And I think that's compelling. Yeah, that's right. That's much better along the, the, what you're saying, right? 
Yeah, I, I don't think I love it completely, but I, I think that there are aspects of that that I really enjoy. Like, I like the idea that perhaps the Nora that we saw is in that International Assassin Hotel universe, and maybe she doesn't remember Kevin, or maybe she does, and she's pissed at Kevin. Uh, it doesn't like this world and just wants to be alone because maybe she went through the machine, and rather than finding her children and being reunited with them, she did just get electrocuted to death. <laughs> and she's just now in the afterlife just, like, being super bitter about it uh you know there could be something there again it's all in the telling of the tale so i'm not closed off to that i think that there could be a way to do that to back it up a little bit to chris's point about do the doctors know that nora and matt and laurie are following them you gotta believe absolutely yeah vicky asked the same thing yeah yeah you know at this point like that just makes sense and like that's a really easy way of like getting us into you know the nora story of like how she's going to access the, this machine or choose not to access this machine like you could very easily seeing this be uh like a how much do you want it test you know like just how badly do you want to go ahead and do this thing and it's you know in facing remarkable rejection and then showing extreme tenacity and relentlessness in the pursuit of this thing that you really really now know deeply that you need uh and that could be a big part of the test, and that could be a big part of determining Nora's worthiness. All of that being said, I think we got feedback. I'm sure you can find who sent this in about the idea that Nora could just step into the machine and it's just not working. You know, that was something that we said a couple of podcasts ago, right? Right. And that was uh, in part that was from Carrie Hollihan, who said, I'm thinking there's a reason why Nora's troubles with technology were right. highlighted in the Perfect Strangers episode. I will not be surprised if she gets into the contraption. Nothing happens at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is something that we talked about uh, a few podcasts ago. I don't think that we really connected those two points very well. But there is an established pattern in her in her second episode of the season, in the second episode of the season, rather, that focused on Nora, uh, where, you know, she's going through, you know, the, the airport or she's going through, like, metal detectors or whatever's going on with, like, the cell phone and the GPS. It just stuff isn't working and it's aggravating. It's just, like, adding aggravation to what's already a very aggravating experience for her. But it could also be setting up the fact that at a certain point we might get to a place where Nora steps into the machine and it's just not working because maybe for Nora Durst, it is not meant to work. Yeah, it's entirely possible. And they may have already known that. There may be something we speculated on pregnancy. But it's also possible that Nora is just not a person who this is a good fit for. And we ad nauseum sort of went on and on about, uh, I hope there was no nausea involved, but we went mm-hmm. on and on about how the question, right? The question that's asked of Nora with the, the baby and the cancer and all of that and the guy who answered wrong on that or quote unquote wrong, that maybe the question is about something else, that maybe it was in the way a response was made and so i don't know ultimately if that's something that uh that that is part of this that they that they just basically said all along they don't want you maybe maybe there's something more i we i don't think we're gonna have to wait very long to find that out uh we had we had this basically from Alyssa. Alyssa says avid listener of your podcast here and can't tell you how much therapizing i need after all of last week's episode did not see that suicide coming uh but i would like to talk about the suicide machine that nora is most likely headed into uh can we discuss maybe kevin finding her in the international assassin purgatory with everyone making requests for kevin to talk to their loved ones he should be talking to one of his own seeing the ending to the book of kevin we know we will be seeing nora again when kevin goes back can he bring people back with him and i say people i'm not talking about nora but possibly the departures too i don't need an explanation for anything but we do need closure on the kevin and nora story josh do we need closure on that story and would the hotel be a good place to get it 
we need closure on the Kevin and Nora story for sure, right? I think I so. Mean, I think so. I completely agree. I'm not okay with where it's at. I'm, I'm not good with where it's at. Like, even if it's just, like, getting them to a place of, of mutual respect and friendship again, uh, that might be the only place it needs to go to. Um, though I really think that it probably just needs to go back to, like, the, the soaring heights of Kevin and Nora at their best, the Garvey Dursts at their best. Uh, that's really where I feel like this is going to go and ought to go. Uh, but even if it doesn't go there, it can't end with that, final scene in that hotel being the darkest point of their existence and it could be especially poignant actually if the reconciliation takes place at a different hotel (laughs) good point uh emma carroll pointed out that when kevin went through the first time that he had guides there he had virgil there he had david burton telling him what to do but what happens if he goes to the other side we all know that's how he usually gets back is he going to end up stuck there because there's no one to guide him is there a good person on the board, Josh, to act as Kevin's guide if we do see him go into the hotel again? Uh, bring back Virgil. What about Lori Garvey, right? What about Lori Garvey? Because she just she is the Kevin yeah. Whisperer. She just ended her life. Uh, Bobby from, from Jersey asked if Lori is dead and Kevin then sees her at the hotel. Will that confirm it is real considering Kevin doesn't know Lori is dead? And I would say yeah, it, yes. I would think so too. Uh, and the other piece of that, though, is I think – Kevin is a man on a mission right now, and I don't know how that doesn't rattle him to the point where he fails, like if he sees Lori there. Good point. You know, Good point. You know, that would be so jarring uh, to have his ex-wife, who he had just had a really nice moment with, suddenly show up here and be dead. I, I think that that would be too hard for him to overcome. And, I mean, I guess it depends on if you think that it's going to be mission failure instead of mission accomplished. But, again, in the in the spirit of optimism, i got to imagine that whatever Kevin is you know, going to walk away from this with is going to be a positive experience. Uh, I don't think that Lori would contribute to that. I think Laura would, Lori would really end that for him. So, I don't know. I don't think that she'd be a good guide. I, I, you know, maybe she'll show up there, and that's like a stumbling block that he has to deal with at some point. But as somebody who has to like kind of Yoda him through this whole thing, <laughs> she's just not the right force ghost for me. Someone tells him not to drink the water when Virgil does it. Uh, we had a question from Patrick Charles, and the question was, will he drink the water? Do you think Junior will stay at the hotel this time? Kevin speaks with Lori and tells her he likes going to the other world. In the first two episodes, we see Kevin essentially suffocating himself possibly either trying to return to the other world or actually going there. An international assassin, and I live here now, we see the adventures Kevin goes on. Several times Kevin tells others about how much he wants to have a family and be with them, but we always end up in a situation where he's not engaged with them. In I Live Here Now, it can be interpreted that Kevin is truly conflicted about going back home by how he sings Homeward Bound. In International Assassin, Virgil tells Kevin not to drink the water. We see the effects in their second visit that Virgil has drunk the water, keeping him in the hotel. With everything going on, will Kevin drink the water to keep himself in the other place? Josh, will Kevin make an affirmative choice to stay? Maybe. You know, he loves it there. (laughs) (laughs) This is my favorite place to go on vacation. This is my favorite hotel. He's like, I'm done being a cop. And I don't want to be a messiah figure. I just want to be on constant vacay. Uh, And he may choose to, I don't know, that this will be more than just a layover. 
Ah, uh, yeah, it, 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 and that's the that's the big concern, right? And you know, our read has always been, or at least my read has always been, if you want to take the Sarah Durst thing as actually happening in the future of the world that we, as we know it, that take the post-apocalyptic stuff out of it. Uh, maybe that's a swerve. Maybe we're reading too much into it. We're Lindelofing, whatever. Why would she deny knowing Kevin? And the only thought I could have is, well, it's because Kevinism led to the death of Kevin. Like the buy-in to the belief is what led to the death of this guy that she did care about and the the belief in it at all and the experiences therein and the book and the people driving him in that regard and all of that caused the rift that caused them to separate and that if Kevin and Kevinism hadn't been a thing that wouldn't have happened I should note in that regard the Kevin Garvey that we meet at the beginning of season three isn't seeing ghosts he isn't he isn't manifesting Evie Murphy he isn't having psychotic breaks it is Kevinism that probably triggers this. It is the idea and the reminders of that. As we see him looking at the book, he has flashes throughout the early part of the season of the hotel. And it is Kevinism and the discussion of it that is pulling him back in this direction. So my read has always been that Nora could be sad on Kevinism because it kills Kevin Garvey. And whether or not that's true or not, it certainly killed their relationship. And so a future Nora Durst on her own, I don't know. I, it's a it's an interesting thing because for all we know kevin garvey senior or kevin garvey jr is hiding out with nora durst that that is happening and that kevinism has gotten out of control and kevin garvey himself wants to hide from it we have no idea but it seems like they're not uh, together the denial could be they're not together the denial could and that could be a very biblical denial or the denial could be like i'm hiding who you truly are because we are together and i think both are still on the table and i think there are ways to get happy endings and resolution out of both that do fundamentally involve next episode but Kevin is uh, Kevin is at war with himself, and he has been uh, throughout the context of this series. He put it to bed seemingly briefly, or for a couple of years before we you know we had this season. But it's come back, and I think it's come back in part because of Kevinism. So it certainly seems like Nora would be out on Kevinism for that reason alone, if that led to him ending up dead. Uh, and that that so that is, reads as realistic to me for sure. All right, we got to start wrapping up here. You got one more, one more in you. You tell me, man. Do you, is there anything uh, anything that you uh, wanted to bring to the table? Uh, we had some other thoughts, generally speaking, uh, about the great writing on the series, uh, just in general. And uh, Pulsar 77 points out the Wizard of Oz reference. The Wizard of Oz also starts on a ranch with an upcoming storm. And, of course, Oz is a nickname for Australia. Uh, so when the Wizard of Oz is referenced there, it's all great. Uh, Nora- Maybe Grace is so obsessed with the shoes because she's looking for the ruby slippers. Ah, good point. There's no place like home. That could easily Indeed. be what's happening there uh nora took out her iud laurie thinks this that she and kevin are trying to have kids uh which would certainly be contrary to what was happening with laurie and kevin seven years ago referenced in this episode but of course nora took it out because she intends to step into the machine the lighter from season one that says don't forget me Lori passes to Kevin as a goodbye gift. I think that's a great yeah. point by Pulsar. And then Michael says that Judas hanged himself. And when Jill calls Lori and asks her what she's doing, she says, oh, just hanging out. Oh, God, that's good. <laughs> and this is the kicker, because we don't know this yet, but Pulsar says both Lori and Kevin are probably drowning themselves around the same time. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> How would that feel to be Jill Garvey? And like, let, let's fast forward like a week after all of this, and you find out that both your parents drowned to death on the same day in separate incidents. Ugh. I say drowned to death. I don't think you can drown not to death. 
Oh, God. Brutal. Devastating. It's awful. Yeah. It's it's horrible. And I don't want it's to horrible. end the podcast on that note, but I am thankful for the feedback that we got because I appreciate the feedback that we got that was very understanding of the decisions that Lori made. But I appreciated that we had feedback from Crystal and others that ultimately said, you know what? She's making a selfish decision, too. Like, I understand why she's making it. But think about Crystal pointed out. Think about what Lori's done to the man who takes her diving. If that death looks like an accident, it may appear to others that he was negligent in some way. If he doesn't get in some trouble over this, he'll still be saddled with guilt. That's a lot to put on someone. And I, I agree. And I think that's being left out of this story. And I don't want to speak this without saying it because I don't want to have people out there frustrated. Like, this is not a victimless crime. It is not a, an achievement or an accomplishment or a moment of peace or zen for Lori Garvey that is her true purpose. This is a suicide, and it is dark, and it has a negative impact and will have a negative impact on many individuals. And I don't want uh, I don't want to feel like we're encouraging or saying, like, good for Lori Garvey. She finally stepped no, up God, and did no. what, you know, you no, know, this is a... Uh, this, the, the difficult thing about this is you can have a person and a character who it feels like the right thing for. She's at peace now, and yet still look at the act itself as a terrible, terrible thing. And as you're pointing out, hopefully the darkest that The Leftovers is going to get. I really think that it will be the darkest that The Leftovers is going to get. Um, it's really it would be it would be really hard to go darker and still be compelling for me. So that's just my you know just you and I seem to be pretty in tune with the show most of the time. I think that that's something that we can say fairly you know with with some degree of certainty. So I just my instinct is that this has to be the worst. And if it if it's not, then I feel like we, the leftovers will have lost me to a certain degree. And I just don't think that that's what's going to happen. Um, this is a very very upsetting episode, uh, and Laura does an incredibly upsetting thing and these are fictional characters it's a fictional story but this is the kind of stuff that means a lot to people you know we we you know we tune into into shows like this to you know in a lot of ways sometimes to escape what's going on in our real lives or to enhance what's happening in our real lives too in many cases but you know it's it's something that can have an impact on you on a day-to-day basis um so it's a very difficult moment in the in the history of the show. I thought that it was uh, it was crafted in a really masterful way. Um, but of course, what Laurie does is is really a, a dark thing and something that uh, it would it would be great if that is not something that happens regularly, but unfortunately is a reality. Um, that being said, just not something that we did on the last podcast, but I think it's worth doing. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The number is one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. That's available. 24 hours every day suicidepreventionlifeline.org for anybody who has those kinds of thoughts there's help out there uh, just like even you know yeah. talking about it, it's getting me a little emotional. Yeah, and no, I was going to say hopefully this podcast <laughs> hasn't left anyone in the position where by the end of it they need to call that number. But it, it, listen, we know that there isn't necessarily ever a true clear cause and effect, and that is something true. Car, yeah, no, stop. <laughs> Sorry, is, yeah, no, no I'm just trying to get myself out of it. Yeah, no, I'll get you out of it. I'll get you out of it. Here's an idea. Maybe it wasn't a final exit for Lori. Isabella says, "Do you think it's possible that Lori donned the scuba gear so that she'll survive the biblical flood that many believe is going to happen in the?" <laughs> Your anniversary. Josh, does this end with Australia being flooded, but Lori in her scuba gear saving the day? Oh, That's God. how I'm going to choose to believe this show ended, whether you tell me it did or not. All right. Well, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll, <laughs> we'll get, you know, maybe a few uh, weeks down the line, and that's what we'll be talking about when we're talking about the finale. But, uh, you know, heavy stuff. Heavy, heavy stuff, Antonio. And hopefully we're going to have, uh, you know, heavy stuff to talk about with the penultimate episode of The Leftovers coming up pretty soon as well. But hopefully some moments of levity as well. I, 
I, I expect so. I think that the leftovers, the moment it really found levity is really the moment it found itself. And that's really what I'm holding on to here is I think that that's ultimately, I think that's ultimately the right ingredient for the show. And I think that the, I think that the writers of the show know that. So I really think that that's where we're going to go. And this was a really tough thing to sit through and watch and talk about for two plus hours between you and I uh, across the two podcasts. But uh, hopefully it was helpful for you guys to some degree to listen to. Hopefully, uh, you know, you, you feel represented in the takes that were discussed here on this podcast, or at least you got something out of it. Uh, we will be back on Sunday night with our recap of the next episode of The Leftovers, and we'll have our feedback show next week as well. Subscribe to what we're doing, pushorecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes. Uh, you can send your feedback after the episode airs to leftovers at pushorecaps.com or through our feedback form, uh, pushorecaps.com slash feedback. Yeah, I love the idea uh, that Nora is in the world of the hotel at the end of that first episode. I like that she wouldn't, it wouldn't be an international assassin hotel. It would be like an international assassin uh, Airbnb. So I like the opportunity that she could be in a completely different world and we could have some more, <laughs> we could have some more absurdity. Uh, that's what we need. We need some more absurdity and absurdism. We need some more jokes. We need some more levity and some more humor. But we can, we understand that uh, it's not all going to be, it's not all going to be peaches and cream. Like uh, we're going to see some difficult stuff and that's what i'm tracking as we podcast about that next episode we'll be back my concern would be kevin garvey jr is just gonna bite it and it's gonna be Stop. more darkness yeah. Stop. i'm gonna i'm gonna choose to believe josh with you i'm gonna put my faith in joshism put I'm your gonna, ride with me ride with ride, me I, look the water's fine i'm gonna back myself with joshism i'm, I'm gonna fully convert to joshism i'm shaving <laughs> my beard into a neard it's happening josh it's real it's real. Joshism is real. Yeah. The dawn of Joshism. Okay. Well, with that, <laughs> that note. we're going to get out of here. All right. We'll talk to you guys again soon. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.